You're listening to The Ortho Show, advancing patient care through the sharing of ideas and information. My name is Chuck Thigpen. I'm from Greenville, South Carolina. I work for ATI Physical Therapy, and I'm the Senior Director of Practice Innovation Analytics. My clinical practice is really focused on the shoulder, but then spend a lot of time on uh, outcomes and pathway-driven care. My name is Darren Padua. I work at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where I serve as a professor and also department chair in exercise and sports science. My role is more on the academic research side of things. Um, I'm, I work as part of the Motion Science Institute or the Musculoskeletal Injury Prevention Institute, and uh, our work primarily focuses on ACL injury prevention, both primary and secondary, interested in learning how we can implement injury prevention programs, how do we determine when someone's ready to go back to sports safely, and also help, you know, mitigate risk factors for development of osteoarthritis down the road very good well chaps thank you both so much for joining us on the ortho show uh, we're here in las vegas uh, uh t- taking in some of the sights and sounds of the ortho summit and obviously you're both here as faculty members uh, presenting so chuck if maybe we start with you if you could tell us a, a little bit about what your uh, primary or the or your most passionate presentation is that you're delivering here I got to share some of the work we've done looking at overhead athletes, in particular baseball pitchers, and their ability to return to sport and maybe some concepts at preventing injury and and allowing those athletes to continue on. So there's a craze, I would call it a craze, of weighted balls where you take a heavier or lighter ball and throw very aggressively in an effort to increase velocity. So if you keep up, my guess is being um, from the other side of the pond, you guys don't follow major league baseball much but uh it's big on velocity that's all about uh increasing how hard you throw and so these programs are aimed to do that and they help a little bit but they also seem to come with a big injury risk so i would imagine that if you're practicing pitching with a much heavier ball it adjusts this whole theory around pitch count probably right you're using a heavier ball so you should probably pitch less well so it's it's only a training but I think to your point, it comes out and um, really influences their mechanics. It seems to really increase their layback or their external rotation um, exponentially, probably 10%, 15%, which is uh, concerning given that these athletes already have extreme amounts of motion. Have you noticed an increase in injury as a result of these training? Um, it, just anecdotally in the clinic. So we mainly I treat... Um, youth and adolescents, so kind of, you know, your high school, middle school uh, kids, and we see a lot of kids coming in. As a matter of fact, we had 13 consecutive last fall and in the spring kids that came in, and they had all been doing a weighted ball program in the last six months. Now, that's very high level, like level seven research, Um, (laughs) just in clinic, what we're noticing in practice, but it really seems to be a problem. Have you got any ongoing studies looking into this? Uh, we are. We're more looking at. We've been looking at specialization and really youth only playing one sport because that's what confounds it, right? All these kids only play one sport, you know, ten, twelve months a year, and they're doing this extra training and pitching lessons and all this stuff. So it's hard to unpeel that because mom and dad are convinced they're going to 
they're going to make it, right? Well, they're all going to be the next whoever. I guess Garrett Cole, right? He just signed a three hundred and twenty-four million dollar contract or something like That's that. That's the same the as my contract here on the Ortho Show. Actually, it's exactly that amount. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I think I'm being underpaid here. Yeah, you're not being paid at all. Last I checked. <laughs> um, so, what would your what would your key takeaway be um you know about that subject for for surgeons and or other physical therapists listening you know i think first is there's lots of ways to improve velocity there's lots of strength just basic strength training programs that are shown to work if you've done that first then maybe using weighted balls and augment is a good idea Um, but i would say probably unless you're that 25 to 27 year old professional pitcher and your choice is to go work at UPS or you know put on the loafers and go to the bank uh, for a quote-unquote real job probably weighted balls not the best way to improve your pitching performance. Yeah, good good message and, and Darren what, what have you been presenting on that's a passion point here so far or, or coming up? Yeah, so this morning we presented on uh, ACL injury prevention, um, really trying to push out the message that these programs are, are highly effective at being able to reduce the number of ACL injuries in particular in that kind of teenage adolescent population where a lot of the research has been focused in on. It's a really important and timely topic. There's been basically almost a 60% increase in the number of ACL reconstructions being done here in the U.S. in that teenage population over the last 15 years. So it's, it's really kind of at epidemic levels. So pushing out the message of prevention is really, really important. And uh, I was fortunate to uh, be the lead author on a position statement that was published in the Journal of Athletic Training. Uh, it was an interdisciplinary effort um, with, with surgeons, physical therapists, researchers, and we tried to synthesize all the literature around ACL injury prevention. And essentially what we find is that when you implement these programs, you can prevent half upwards up to two-thirds of all ACL injuries. So significant benefits, and you can also prevent many other types of low extremity musculoskeletal injuries. So there's great bang for your buck if you implement these programs. They take, you know, maybe about 15 minutes uh, to do. And best practice is to utilize uh, multiple different types of exercises, some balance, some strength, some plyometrics, some agility, some flexibility. Put that into a program that's about 15 minutes in duration and most typically delivered as a kind of dynamic warm-up prior to the start of practice and doing that consistently at least two to three times per week you can see the injury reduction for both lower extremity injuries and and all types of lower extremity musculoskeletal injuries so we've seen there's been a number of studies out there looking at this and it it does indeed seem to be effective but i also hear that once the uh the telescope of the or the microscope i should say of the study is removed from them i hear they tend to drop off and not stick with them is is that yeah problem? i think the big uh the big thing now in acl injury prevention research is on this whole implementation side of things we we have programs that are effective they can be delivered by coaches or players on the team but it's getting the teams to do them on a regular basis that's the big challenge right now and so how do we message things correctly uh, to coaches to teams to parents so they understand the value and also the risks of not doing this um, is really sort of where the next wave of research needs to go is really on the implementation side of things and and how do you message it to different teams and and also there needs to be some continued research to show the additional benefits from a performance standpoint not just the injury prevention side of things because I think if we can definitively show that you can improve key metrics that relate to sport performance, whatever that sport is, that will further help with the implementation side of things. Because most folks, if they've not been injured, they don't see why should I do this, right? I'm not going to get injured. I've never been injured. So it's, it's, a, it's a difficult discussion. Um, but if you can show them 
that this will have benefits of their performance, whether they've been injured or not, they're much more likely to, to uptake the program and continue to do it on a regular basis. Right. I imagine there's some feeling of this is taking away from my time doing the tr- real training that I need. Well, that's certainly what we hear from the coaches. You know, the coach, if you're we're talking about like a high school coach or uh, some kind of organized youth sport, they have a, you know, a fixed time to work with the, the students or the athletes. Maybe it's an hour, maybe it's 90 minutes. So taking 15 minutes out of that training session could be considerable for them where they feel they're going to be better served by working on skill development because that's how they're ultimately going to be judged and their contract may be dependent upon that. So I get it from that standpoint. But what we really try to preach to the coaches is that probably more than any other type of ability that there is out there, availability is the most important thing. So having your best players available to train on a regular basis is probably going to have the biggest impact on team performance. So sacrificing that 10 to 15 minute window to make sure your players are healthy and they can train regularly could be really the difference in the end. Charles, is there, are there any programs like this that exist for the shoulder, for the upper limb? Um, well, funny you should ask. Uh, actually, we have a study in review. Actually, the NATA Research and Education Foundation funded a few years ago. Uh, my co-investigator, Dr. Ellen Shanley, we did in youth high school baseball players um, and showed similar results that, again, if they do the program, it seems to make a difference in some of these uh the, your mobility and arm strength, which seems to be affected. There are, there are a couple of Japanese studies um, that show in youth, uh, I don't know if in Japan if it's the Little League or not, but in Japanese Little League, that if they do these preventative uh, programs, it was a little more intensive than what I think uh, you could get the U.S. kids to do is like about a 25, 30-minute daily program but i think it probably has a little cultural issue there but it was effective so i think and if you look at other areas i think about um uh, european football that hamstring prevention and injury prevention programs work when we do them so i think the next the common thread seems to be we kind of know what to do from a prevention standpoint but convincing coaches and athletes that it's important to actually adhere to those things or the thing, but maybe it's not too different than exercise and my eating habits and some other help, uh, healthy behaviors that we may or may not have. It's just back to that good old compliance story. Do, do, as this is a surgical conference, do surgeons have any role in this, or is it too late by the time they're involved? Um, I think they may actually have the most important role uh, from the standpoint of getting buy-in, right? Nobody, uh, con- nobody convinces or drives behavior like surgeons. Um, and, and especially one of the things we saw in our arm care program is that actually the kids that benefited the most were the kids that had had a prior injury. And so it's the, uh, the secondary injury prevention that Darren alluded to. Uh, maybe you can get hurt once and it's not the end of the world, but the, ones, the kids that have multiple injuries have the worst long-term effects. So I would say surgeons have a critical role because, um, because of their position in the healthcare chain. They have a lot of authority and impact on parents seem to dial in the kids, you know, because you're sitting in front of the surgeon, like your choice is either do this or come back and I have a scalpel for you. If you've got a few more minutes, um, there's another subject I'd like to bring up, which perhaps you both got some input in. And I know Charles has been involved in uh, maybe a bit more controversial here at this conference, but um, you were heavily involved with um, some statements about this uh, PT first approach to healthcare. Sure. I was wondering if maybe you could uh, talk a bit about that, how it contrasts to the traditional model and, and what benefits you think it might bring. Yeah, you know, I think um, 
access to care, at least in the States, is maybe one of the most uh, challenging things for musculoskeletal problems. I mean, right, you walk across any population, about half the folks at that time within the last six months have had some muscle joint ache or pain that's limited their activity. And so I think um, our approach has been not necessarily to replace, uh, if you will, the most skilled orthopedic provider, which would be the surgeon, but actually to take physical therapists and athletic trainers who are adequately trained in screening and triaging and early conservative treatment and putting those folks at the, if you will, the tip of the spear. And so really uh, utilizing that as a early intervention because uh, you've got, and again, I, I don't know how long since you've been in the UK, but it's natural there. That's where you go. If you have a musculoskeletal problem, you don't go see the surgeon. You go to see your physio. Um, and so it's a little bit of a cultural medical model issue here. And so we've been working over the last uh, seven or eight years to develop models with payers and employers to try and help uh, do that. And I think uh, it actually helps our surgeons because the people they see are the ones that need sur- surgical consults uh, and not seeing the patient that just needs to be told to go to therapy or, you know, uh, do something else more conservative. And it allows the surgeon to do what he's best at, which is make surgical recommendations and then, if needed, perform surgery. So, Darren, as you're on the education side, I imagine there, there might be con- some concern misplaced or otherwise that physios don't, or maybe not all physios are up to the task of being that first point of contact, potentially missing diagnoses that, that would be treated better elsewhere. Uh, do you think the current education physios are getting is does make them ready for that task? You know, I, I think across the board, education has really tried to gear up to that, to have athletic trainers and physical therapists be kind of first-level providers. So understanding more what are some important comorbidities to be looking for. You know, I think we're certainly trained very well to deal with, you know, a certain type of orthopedic conditions. Um, but I think now there's been a lot more emphasis on what are some of the other comorbidities you need to be concerned with screening for to, to, to know who and when to refer to uh, should some of those things pop up. And, and where are we at um, in terms of studies to support this approach? Um, you know, there's quite a bit of literature, actually. So there's two studies uh, that are recently published uh, this year uh, with Optum, who's United Healthcare's research and innovation arm uh, just uh, partnered with Boston University and uh, a professor named Louis Kaziz, K-A-Z-I-S, and uh, they showed that basically early physical therapy uh, or chiropractic treatment for low back pain decreased the cost, decreased the uh, the interaction and the problems that patients had. So there's a lot of uh, claims evidence that shows this. There's uh, We had a study in uh, 2018 in Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy that showed if, if patients access physical therapy early in care, uh, that we first and foremost, to Darren's point, uh, we didn't miss anything. We didn't miss any of the – we had no complications. We didn't have anybody that – died or needed surgery immediately or something crazy like that. And then the second point is uh, those patients saved about $1,500 on their health care expenditures over the next year compared to those patients that did not uh, seek uh, early physical therapy. And so it wasn't a randomized control trial. There's definitely some patient um, beliefs and biases there. And I think that's really 
maybe in some ways coming full circle comes back to some of the prevention stuff. I think there's uh, a lot of uh, education needed for the average person to know where do I even seek care. Oh, I'll just go to the emergency room, my urgent care. I go to see my doctor. That's the pattern in the States. And we've got a long ways to sort of unpack some of that and help people find the right place to seek care. Is there any resistance amongst the MDs to this approach? You know, I, I, there are sometimes because I think uh, especially some of our older physicians, 30 years ago, physical therapists and athletic trainers weren't trained that way. And so I think it's a new way. I think many of our younger uh, physicians understand that the level of training that athletic trainers and physical therapists have are adequate and there's not a risk for the patient. Um, I think all of us understand that um, the current healthcare payment models aren't sustainable. And so I think most physicians are open to other alternatives to do that. But I think there's the confounders of health systems and uh, insurance companies and stuff that kind of make that difficult to sort out sometimes. Yeah, I was, that was going to be kind of my final question on that actually is I would imagine isn't there an incentive for payers to help drive this kind of program? Because you mentioned the UK, and I think some of that is driven by economics, quite frankly. It's you know easier in a socialized medical system to send somebody to the PT and, and hopefully fix the problem, um, or at least delay surgery. Yeah, you know, I think it's a complicated question in the state. So I think we've got regulatory issues that um, physical therapy is a little more standard, that most states have similar physical therapy acts. Uh, and uh, licensure. Uh, Athletic training is getting there, but is a little behind from a regulatory perspective of just state to state what athletic trainers are able to do under the law is sort of a challenge sometimes. And then I think the issue for the payers, um, it depends who's paying, right? If you're a large employer, like a uh, that you're a national employer and have thousands of employees, you're ultimately driving, can make those decisions. I wonder sometimes if our insurance companies really are um, looking to get cost savings because they just make a percent on the transaction. But that's probably a much larger discussion that I'm not really qualified to have. It's just me watching. Um, but I think, you know, we, there's there's enough evidence uh, to Micah's question before to we know it works. There's good evidence to show it. And look, I think to Optum's credit and United Healthcare, they've rolled out a plan this year that you can go get four physical therapy visits or chiropractic visits with no out-of-pocket for low back pain starts I think it started in October so many United Healthcare plans nationwide are doing that so I think we'll see right so we've asked for it they said here it is and so now it's sort of um, up to the challenge to see if we deliver or not any final thoughts any any burning messages you'd like to leave to the surgeons at this conference Darren let them know that prevention works. And, you know, I th- the thing I like, love about this conference, especially in the advanced practitioner meetings, was really just the uh, collaboration and the discussions between the therapy side of things and the surgery side of things. And I think that's such an important conversation that needs to be had to really sort of put this, the, the patient at the center of it all and get the best outcomes. And it's great to, to have a meeting like this where all these different healthcare professionals are coming together to talk about how we can optimize patient care. And, and have you noticed a change over your career in the collaboration between surgeons and, and physical therapists or ATCs? I mean, what, what I've generally noted is, is that, you know, the, the best surgeons and the best physical therapists 
create these great care teams and they communicate and learn from one another and respect and trust what the other brings to the the table in terms of managing and optimizing the care from that uh, for that particular patient and so I would encourage you know all healthcare professionals to take that approach and understand it's an interdisciplinary collaborative process and there's not just one person who is the most important piece of the puzzle. Chuck, Darren, thank you so much. Um, enjoy the rest of your time here at the conference. Don't lose any money on those roulette tables. <laughs> and uh, hopefully we get to speak to you again one day in the future. Great. Right. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks so much. Thank you.